Today's scripture is in Luke. It's going to be Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. It's one of the little parables, the parable of the barren fig tree. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Good morning, everybody. So yeah, I think Thursday night, Friday, will be remembered as the great burning bush incident at Regeneration for the foreseeable future. As Stefan said, the Corinth Church for sure saved the day. There is definitely a huge blessing in having them be here on Thursday night to start the process of putting out that fire. So we owe them a big thank you. We also owe a few of our own people a big thank you as well for helping out with that. And not the least among them is, of course, Stefan, who ran point on getting a lot of stuff cleaned up on Friday. Uh, but also Scott and Genoa and Howard and Tyler and Priscilla and a handful of other people were really important in being here on Friday and cleaning things up, getting the kids' rooms ready downstairs, and then painstakingly going through the cafe and cleaning all the cups and shelves and machines and pews and just everything that's in there got a deep, deep cleanse. So all that to say is you can feel confident about drinking a cup of coffee this morning. But also, if you see those folks around today, give them a big hug and a big thank you for their work in getting that ready so that we could be here. And not just to worship this morning, but also just to be fully functional and to be able to do all the stuff that we enjoy doing, like hang out and do halftime and drink coffee and be together. Again, give those folks a big thank you when you see them. Let's just pause for a minute and pray about all that, and then we'll jump in. So pray with me. Father, we are so grateful that we are able to be here this morning and to worship in this building. Thank you for the gift that this facility is to our church, and a church is never defined or limited to the building that it meets in, and yet this place is a real gift to us, and we're honored to be able to steward it. So God, we're grateful for the grace that you bestowed on us over the last couple of days in limiting the damage that could have been done. Grateful for our brothers and sisters in the Corinth Church. May you continue to bless them as they fight the uphill battle of living in the United States far from home. May we continue to be a blessing to them. And then again, God, thank you for the people in our community who gave up a whole day, essentially, to be a part of the cleanup effort to get this place ready for this morning. So we're grateful for all of that and for all those folks and for the opportunity to be able to turn our attention fully to your word and to being together and to worshiping you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is Luke chapter 13. If you still have that open, let's look at it one more time. Verses 6 through 9. This is one of Jesus' shortest and I think lesser known parables. And we're going to spend our time this morning reflecting on what he has to say here. So let's read it again. Luke 13 verse 6. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. 
Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. So let's begin our conversation on this text by remembering where we were a couple weeks ago. First, there are ten parables that show up in the middle of Luke's gospel that are unique to his telling of the Jesus story. They don't show up in any of the other gospels. And so each of the ones we're looking at are of these ten unique stories. We also saw that Luke's gospel is constructed in sort of a three-act play, a three-act movement. And each act is built around geography. So act one takes place in Galilee where Jesus grew up and started his ministry. Act two, which is the longest of the three acts, takes place mostly in Sumeria as Jesus is on the road headed towards Jerusalem. And then act three takes place in Jerusalem. And Luke puts in these really clear signals that he's shifting from one act to the next. Act one ends like this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 9.51. And then Acts 2 ends with this. When he had said these things, he, Jesus, went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Luke 19.28. These really clear signals that one thing is ending and the next part of the book is beginning. Now it's fascinating to me how Luke ends Acts 2. He says, after Jesus said these things. Two weeks ago, we talked a lot about language and the types of language that Jesus uses in the Gospels and how in particular in this second act in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses this very ordinary, everyday language. He's not preaching, he's not teaching, he's having conversations on the road with all different kinds of people. And we talked about how far too often we tend to elevate preaching and teaching over conversation. And yet conversation is so important to our formation as Jesus followers. Jesus was a master of conversation. He listened well. He asked great questions. He engaged in dialogue with people. And he filled his conversations with stories. So, this story that we're looking at today, short little story, only four verses, goes like this. Okay, there's a man who owns a vineyard. Now, in that day and age, in that culture, to be able to own a vineyard would have been a sign of wealth, of success. This guy, we can assume, was pretty good at business. Now, people who have a strong business acumen are typically good at seeing what is working and what isn't working, what is being productive and what is not. So this guy goes for a walk through his vineyard to do a little assessment. And as he's walking along, he sees this fig tree that he planted a couple years back, and he sees it's not producing still any fruit. Now this kind of raises the question, what is a fig tree doing in a vineyard? Jesus doesn't explain that to us. But again, I think it's safe to assume that this businessman would have at some point thought, this was a worthy investment. I'm going to dedicate part of my land and my resources to this tree. And I'm going to do it in the hopes that I'm able to turn a profit on this. So he sees this tree. It's not producing any fruit. He has a conversation with his right-hand man, the vine dresser. vine dresser was in charge of cultivating the vineyard, keeping it healthy and growing and producing good fruit. And the businessman says, look, We've spent three years on this tree. Okay, I've got nothing to show for it. Let's get rid of it. Get the axe, fire up the chainsaw, cut it down. Let's get something in here that will be more productive, that will produce some fruit, that will turn us 
a prophet. Let's not waste this resource that we have, this precious ground on this unproductive fig tree. But the vine dresser has this more tempered approach, right? He's like, slow down, Turbo. Let me dig around. Let me work this soil. Let me fertilize. Let me put some manure on it. Let's give it a year. And if it bears fruit, great. We'll keep it. And if it doesn't, after a year, then I guess we can go ahead and cut it down. Now, this is an interesting story, I think. Four little verses, but there are at least three ways in which this story really pushes on our cultural values. So let's take a look at some of the ways it pushes against our culture. First of all, we live in a culture that values starters, right? Especially here in the Bay Area. We love startups. We love entrepreneurs, creativity, new ideas. We value starting. Now, there's nothing wrong with starting, but I think as a result of our focus on starting, we have a much more difficult time with the middle, right? With seeing things through to the end, to their completion. How many of you would say, oh yeah, I'm a starter. We've got like eight projects going right now and none of them are done, <laughs> right? You know, you see something in your house, you need to organize it, you want to paint a room, whatever, you go, you get all the supplies and you get like 60% through and as you're doing that, as you're painting that room, you're like, oh, I need to like refinish the deck or whatever the next thing is and the next thing you know, that room never gets done and you're on to the next project. I'm actually kind of a lot like this myself. We love the beginning. We love the start of something, but the middle is much more difficult, right? The middle is messy and nebulous, and there's not as much clarity as when we're getting something started. So I think a lot of us, when we get into the middle, when things start to get hard, we tend to bail and move on to the next thing. Okay, so first of all, I think this story pushes on our valuing of starting. And I think it also challenges our culture in this way because in our culture, we value violence. Now, this is a harsh thing, okay? So I want to come at this idea in a little more gentle way, and then we'll kind of unpack what that means. Anybody here love those rehab shows on HGTV? Anybody? Am I the only one? I love that stuff. I can get sucked into that so easily. I don't know what it is about it, but there's something about that process of taking something old, something that's been beat up, and then restoring it back to its original glory, back to its intended purpose. My favorite show, there's a, a whole bunch of these kinds of shows. My favorite show is this one called Rehab Addict, starring Nicole Curtis. Anybody know this show? There's like one or two people. Great. Three, four, awesome. Okay. We'll have a meeting about it afterwards. Nicole Curtis is vigilant about saving old homes. She works mostly in Detroit and in Minneapolis, and she usually finds these historic homes, like over 100 years old, and just totally falling apart. And again, her life mission is to make sure that these old homes are preserved and restored, and most importantly, not torn down. And I got to admit that as good as she is at what she does, there are sometimes she'll buy these houses and I'm like, there's no way, not this one. <laughs> and I just think as I'm watching this, like you're putting in all of this painstaking effort to save the doorknobs on this house or whatever the project is that particular week. Why not just tear that thing down and start over? Like, wouldn't it be so much easier to just knock that house down and build a new one in its place? 
Eugene Peterson says it this way, killing is the predominant method of choice to make the world a better place. Think about that for a minute. Killing is the predominant method of choice to make the world a better place. This is what I mean by valuing violence. I'm not necessarily talking about the killing of people, although that's certainly a part of this, but our tendency, the way of the world, is to look at something and just say, tear it down. Eliminate it. Let's just eradicate that problem. And so part of what Jesus is telling us in this story is there is another way. There's a way of patience. Give it time. Add some manure. And this leads us to the third challenge to our culture. We tend to seek the quick fix. In other words, we avoid manure, right? (laughs) This is one of those times where it would be kind of cool to swear in church, but I'm going to hold back here. (laughs) As a society, we do everything that we can, right, to insulate ourselves from manure. It's gross, it's smelly, it's offensive to our sanitary sensibilities. Now, let me just say real quick, there are some good reasons why we do this, right? (laughs) And we should be grateful for some of those things. But the truth is that in the excrement, in the waste, in the manure, there is this power for new life, for more fruit. And so as much as we may not like this stuff, we need it. We rely on manure in our world, in our society, to fertilize and replenish soil with needed nutrients so that another crop can grow, so that more fruit can be produced. Without manure, there is no life. And when you think about it, manure is very similar to the metaphors that Jesus uses in many of his stories. Jesus will say things like the kingdom of God is like yeast. It's like a mustard seed. It's like salt. It's like manure. These hidden things, these things that we try to maybe move out of our mind in some ways, working underneath the surface to produce something new, something fresh. But the thing about manure is that it is not a quick fix. Right? You don't just throw some manure on the ground and then all of a sudden plants start springing out of it. Okay, it's not glamorous. It takes time to work it into the soil for that fruit to be produced. But manure is absolutely necessary for life. Now, before we get too deep into application, we need to say a couple of words about what this parable is not saying. And this is actually kind of a good little study in how to read or how not to read our Bibles. So just a quick word about parables. A parable is a short story that was used by a rabbi or a teacher to communicate one big idea, one essential truth. Now the thing about stories is that they are sort of open-ended and they do invite our imagination. And that's actually one of the ways in which we learn the best is by engaging in what a story is trying to say, and yet sometimes we can read our own situation way too much into some of these stories. And when we do that, we can miss the actual truth that the parable is trying to communicate. So I just share that to say there are some things that this parable is not communicating. This parable is not saying that you should tolerate foolishness or wickedness. This parable is not saying that you should keep that irresponsible employee. Just give them another year. They'll probably figure it out. (laughs) 
This is not saying to put off disciplining your rebellious child or keep giving money to that codependent mooch. <laughs> Again, I'm sure in a year they'll pay you back, right? And then maybe this is the most important one. This parable is definitely, definitely not saying to stay in that dysfunctional or even abusive relationship. Okay? There are some things that you can end and that should be ended now. This story is not an invitation to be passive, right? This is an invitation to renounce violence, to embrace patience, but it is not an excuse to be passive. And think about the vine dresser for a minute. He's not passive, right? He works the soil, he digs around, he shovels stinky manure for a year. He does the hard work. So let me say it again, there are some things that you must cut off right now. So, if this parable is not about that, then what is it saying? And I think this story has way more to say about God and his nature than it does about us and the situations that we find ourselves in. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a Jesuit philosopher and paleontologist, just kind of let that title wash over you for a minute. <laughs> Jesuit philosopher and paleontologist. That would have been like the coolest business card, right? <laughs> he said this. He said, above all, trust in the slow work of God. Trust in the slow work of God. That's what this parable is about. It's an invitation to trust the slow work of God to trust God's mysterious approach to time that runs so counter to our fast-paced society. We see this all over Scripture. I'm just going to give you three examples. Abraham. When you read the Abraham story in the book of Genesis, you'll see his age mentioned time and again. It's in there four or five different times. Part of that is to remind us that Abraham is an old man when God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you and give you descendants and make your name great. He's 75 years old. So part of it is about the miraculousness of how that all happens. But Abraham is 100 when this promise is fulfilled. So he has to sit for 25 years waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Later on in the Old Testament, there's this moment where the people of Israel have been in slavery. And they're freed and they've come up to the promised land, this land that God has offered them. And they send some spies into the land, 12 different guys. And when they come back, 10 of them are like, whoa, it's scary. There's giants in the land. We're all going to die. And two of them, a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb, are like, no, we can do this. This place is amazing. And God is on our side, so we should just go for it. But the people buy into the scary report of those 10 spies, and they ignore Caleb, and they ignore Joshua. And so God says, okay, this whole generation is going to have to die out. And again, if you follow Caleb's story throughout Numbers and Joshua and Judges, it keeps mentioning his age. He's 40 when he goes to spy the land. He's 85 when he finally gets to settle in the land that God had promised. Can you imagine waiting 45 years knowing that there's this incredible place for you that God has promised and you have to wait decades for that to finally be fulfilled? And then, of course, the craziest one of all to me is Jesus Okay, Jesus is born as a baby. 
He grows up as a kid playing in the backyard. He does a little school, learns how to make some chairs, apprentices as a carpenter with his dad. He lives a normal life for 30 years. Jesus, the Son of God, essentially does nothing for 30 years. Now, God absolutely can and does work in instantaneous, miraculous ways. There's no doubt about that. But more often than not, God takes his time. God doesn't work on our timeline. God is far less interested in the quick fix and far more focused on the long view. Our God is a patient God. So the question is, do you trust the slow work of God? Now, the immediate context of this parable is this really bizarre conversation that Jesus has with some people about current events. Let's take a look at this real fast. There was some president at that very time who told him, him being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Weird. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, which is a huge bummer, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, weird stuff going on in this story, right? Weird current event things are happening here. We don't have time to get into all of that, but there's some age-old questions being discussed in this conversation. Questions like, are there certain things that we do or that we can do that cut us off from God? Did those people somehow commit some kind of worse sin? And is that why they suffered in that way? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, we are all equally broken and in need of repentance. And he turns it right back on the people that are asking him these questions. He says, unless you repent, you will all perish. And then it's after that that he tells this parable about this fruitless fig tree. All throughout scripture, a fig tree, vineyard, vines, all these metaphors are used to describe God's people, people of Israel. When Israel is connected to God, when it is following what God has asked them to do, the vine, the fig tree produces fruit. And in those seasons where they're disobedient, where they're following something else other than God, they do not produce fruit. It's a metaphor used again all throughout the Old Testament. And so what we get here in this short little parable is essentially the gospel. Because the truth is Israel has been unfruitful. Israel deserves to be cut down, but Jesus says, give me more time. Let me dig around. Let me shovel some manure. Let's see what happens. And then the crazy part of the story, of course, is this. What happens is that Jesus allows himself to be cut down. Jesus allows himself to take the place of Israel, the fig tree, and of course our place as well. This is the good news about Jesus. This is grace. We worship a patient God. God who does not want to see us cut down. Instead, he allows his son to take the cut in our place. In 2 Peter, which we are studying, we're going to come to this in a couple of weeks, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all 
should reach repentance. And then a few verses later, Peter says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Trust the slow work of God. Do we trust the patience of God? One last story and then we'll pray. When I was in high school, I went to a Catholic school and we had to take religion classes and the kind of the guys that I ran with, we figured out that the best way to kill time in these classes was to start ridiculous debates. And so I remember one of those very vividly in particular because it actually was disturbing to me, the whole conversation. And it went something like this. It actually kind of reminds me of this bizarre conversation that Jesus has with these folks about towers falling on people and whatnot. We debated whether or not if you did something horrible, said something horrible, did some kind of sin, and then like immediately stepped out into the street and got hit by a car, what would happen to you? <laughs> okay, where would you go? What was your eternal destiny in that situation? We spent a whole class period debating this. And again, I found it to be quite troubling, so I went home and I remember talking to my dad about it, and I kind of explained to him the two different sides that people were arguing, and I said, what do you think? What does happen to you in that situation? And I'll never forget this. My dad said this, Steve, don't ever underestimate God's grace. And I was like, cool, that's great, but like really what happens to those people <laughs> in that situation? And he just kept saying it, Steve, don't ever underestimate God's grace. So regeneration, trust the slow work of God. And never, ever underestimate God's grace. Let's pray. Father, in our culture, we tend to celebrate starts. We tend to value the violence of cutting something down and beginning new. And we tend to want to seek the quick fix. And yet again and again throughout Scripture, you show that you work through time and through processes and that you are incredibly patient with us. And so, Father, this morning, I'm sure that there are people here who are in the middle of something and it feels heavy and hard and there is not a light at the end of the tunnel. And I just pray, God, this morning that if anyone here is in that place, they would trust your patience. And then for those of us who struggle and wrestle with trying to earn your approval, trying to earn our way into your presence, God, may we hear this morning of your grace, that no matter what we do, we cannot cut ourselves off from your grace. May we never underestimate the grace that you show towards us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.